Welcome to the Praying Christian Women podcast. I'm Jamie Hampton, and today I get to be here with our guests, Drs. David and Donna Lane. The Lanes are both PhDs specializing in marriage, family, and child therapies from a faith-based perspective, and they also happen to be subject matter experts on the topic of children and mental health. So today we're going to be discussing how parents, grandparents, educators, and the church can come alongside children and encourage them particularly in, in their mental health, in their mental health struggles, and, and especially through this unprecedented season of COVID. Um, doctors Donna and David Lane, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thank you for having us. We're delighted to be invited to your show. Really appreciate the opportunity. Yeah. Well, what is it about... Um, what was it that drew you to the field of mental health? It might be for both of you different stories, but what has made you passionate about pursuing um, just helping people, especially young people in the field of mental health? Well, I, I believe that um, what I do is a calling. I, I literally had one of those experiences. My undergraduate was in, was in education, majored in history. I plan to be a history teacher and um, I couldn't find a job teaching because I graduated in December and you've got to be really, really lucky to find a job in December. Somebody's got to go on maternity leave or something like that. And I couldn't find a job. So I started applying for any job that I could. And uh, I wound up um, getting an interview. It just said youth worker. The ad that I answered said youth worker. And so I went for the interview at the place. And it, this has happened to me three times in my life. I literally stepped out of the car and I heard the Lord's voice say to me, this is where you're supposed to be. This is what you're supposed to be doing. And I was one of those blessed 22 year olds who found his calling just literally the you know the day that uh he, he walked out of uh, undergraduate classroom found his calling and uh, I've, I've never looked back the road at times has been difficult but when you know you're called to a road to walk a road uh, there's no promise it's going to be easy um but you know uh, in faith that you are called to that and it's what you're supposed to be doing. The other two times, by the way, was I did work in, in Haiti after the earthquake, and, and I, I really felt the Lord's voice in that one. And the third one was when I met Dr. Donna. She wasn't Dr. Donna at the time. She was a, a, an undergrad student at Emory University in Atlanta. But um, when I met her, those are the three times that I've really heard the Lord's voice speak to me. This is what you're supposed to be doing. You're supposed to go to Haiti and uh, you're supposed to marry this woman. So that scared the dickens out of me. I don't know about you, but that really scared me. <laughs> but anyway, the, I, I was called to the field and I feel like um, it is a calling because it's such a service-oriented, missions-oriented um, type profession. Uh, I feel like you ought to be called. It's certainly not a job. It's a lifestyle. And um, anyway, I'm getting long-winded. and don't mean to be. That's okay. I love that. I just, I love that it was not even what you expected either. Not even what you had no. for. I know I have a high schooler who is just deliberating over what should I do? What career path should I take? And I'll have to right. tell him this story so that he knows, you know what? It doesn't matter yep. what you keep, God's, if, if you, right. you know, if you rely on God, he's, he's going to get you to where you need to be. <laughs> That's exactly right. The best, the best advice is be open. I think, mm. because I certainly was, I was open and um, there it was, boom, just hit me in the face. And so, uh, well, how about you, Donna? Well, mine, my story is quite different. Um, I was uh, going to Emory to be a doctor I was going to go to medical school and uh, I was taking calculus and organic chemistry and I was actually looking for uh, an easy A 
And I thought, well, psychology, that'll be an easy A. And it happened to be child development. So, of course, I was totally wrong. It was not an easy A. But I uh, fell in love with the material. Um, just absolutely loved it. And then uh, changed my major as a result of that. And really focused on uh, learning all about development, all about children. Um, and then once I graduated, uh, found a job working in a psychiatric hospital, uh, working with children and adolescents. And again, just loved it, absolutely loved it. And then my calling came when the Lord told me, you forgot to invite me into this. I said, oh, <laughs> yeah, what's wrong with me? I, I needed to think about that. Um, so I started inviting God into the counseling process, and that changed the whole course of what I do um, and how I do it. And that then um, became really my my passion and my love. Well, and I think that's something that today I think there is this real divide at times in people's minds between spiritual well-being and mental health. It's like an either or. And I love the fact that the two of you are able to bring those two things together. So can you tell us a little bit about what, what we're going to be talking about mental health, particularly in kids, but what is mental health? What does it encompass? I mean, it's a spectrum and I don't think that, I mean, I don't even know if I know exactly how to define it. So could you talk about that? Sure. Uh, generally speaking, um, mental health is defined as um, uh, a, a general sense of emotional well-being, psychological well-being that's characterized by things like adaptability and flexibility, ability to cope with uh, problems and social connectedness uh, that, al that allows for support systems when we're dealing with adversity and dealing with um, difficult times. And, and so that's a, a general definition. Um, of it. Um, it, it's, it. Of course, everything is more complex in the details, but um, generally speaking, it's, the, it's a, a, an emotional state uh, of contentedness or general happiness that um, uh, characterized by adaptability and flexibility. In families, the, the only thing that differentiates um, healthy families, well-functioning families from families that struggle is flexibility and the ability to negotiate. So a mentally healthy family would have those two dynamics that, that uh, there's flexibility built into the system. It's not a rigid, harsh system, nor is it a wide open, laissez-faire, anything goes system. Um, and uh, the ability to negotiate, everybody needs to be heard. We're going to be talking about children later, and I don't want to jump, get the cart before the horse. Uh, but that's one of the things that's really, really important, that is uh, all children need to have their voice uh, and need to be heard, particularly in the family. Um, so anyway, uh, th those are all features of, of mental health. So I would say that for me, as a lay person, the two things that come up the most in terms of mental health struggles, whether it's with adults or children, are anxiety and depression. And I mean, we hear a lot about that just in general and, and those words. Do, the, do mental health struggles like anxiety and depression manifest differently in kids versus adults? Because some of us may have had our own struggles as adults with anxiety or depression, but does it look different in kids? It, it does. Uh, and for a lot of different reasons. Um, children are not 
ready, depending on developmental stage, they're not ready for certain things to happen in their life. And when things happen, uh, it really upsets the apple cart, like like uh, the uh, a separation and loss, uh, the death of somebody, divorce of parents at a young age. Uh, the children, they don't know how to deal with that because their world is literally fractured. And um, so they don't have the coping resources yet developed to deal with that. Also, they don't have the language to express what's going on with them. They don't have the nuance of the language. You know, you and I can talk about, well, you know, I was, I was kind of frustrated and that, that kind of bothered me. And, and, you know, I kind of dwelt on it. And they don't have the language to do that. They know that they're mad. They know that they're upset, but they don't have the nuance of the language language yet developed to talk about what's going on with them nor the insight so um, they resort to things uh, like uh, acting out they'll withdraw or they'll uh, have temper tantrums they'll have disruptions of sleep uh, those kind of things regression to to habits of earlier ages and um, they um, just they they do look very different in their presentation than adults do I would say, and I'm thinking about one of my kids and when she goes to school, sometimes she'll say, I have a headache. And for the longest time, I thought that it was her eyes. Maybe it was something to do with the lighting at school, but I have come to realize that I think it might just be that she's anxious sometimes. And because I hear her say these things, like when she's needing to concentrate or when she has to answer a question when we're working on, especially since we've been schooling at home, I've noticed when that when she uses that same language, it's when she's working on a problem that she doesn't think she can answer and things like that. She'll say, I have a headache. So I wonder if that's is that another kind of thing? Headaches and things like that. Could that be a language being used to describe? I feel anxious, but I don't know how to express it. Yes, you're exactly right. Your your uh, your assessment is is uh, exactly right, because she is probably on the days when she's got to go to school and says, well, I have a headache today. It's probably because she's got something coming up that she's struggling to deal with, you know, maybe a test or an assignment she didn't understand well. Uh, so she is trying to find a way her body is telling her uh, you're under stress. She just doesn't have the words to express it yet. So would you, would you say that, um, that in this arena in kids of, or in anyone, of, of depression and anxiety, would you say that there's a crossover? I, I think we tend to talk about them as separate things, but I know in my own experience um, that I've had times of what I would consider, I mean, I, there's a broad spectrum, but what I would consider anxiety or depression, and I feel like they sometimes coexist or maybe even feed off of each other and one causes the other, but I don't have the language to really diagnose myself and I have not gone for counseling or anything during those times. So do they cross over or can they even make each other worse? Absolutely. A, a lot of times depression and anxiety both come from a sense of being overwhelmed or feeling powerless or trapped in a situation. And since they originate often from the same source, uh, they often cross over. And a lot of the symptoms can cross over as well. You see with children in particular, regression or clinginess or withdrawal uh, can be symptoms of both anxiety and depression. Even angry acting out or temper tantrums can be a symptom of either or both anxiety and depression. 
And then things like uh, bedtime refusal or um, agitation uh, can be anxiety, certainly, but it also, in children, can be a symptom of depression. So there is a lot of crossover between the two. So in, in our current kind of COVID, I, I don't know if we're post-COVID or mid-COVID, or I don't know where we're, where we're at right now, but <laughs> in this- I don't think you know, anybody knows. <laughs> nobody really knows. In, in this kind of COVID scenario that we find ourselves in, things are different. Things have been different for a long time. Um, and, and, you know, I recognize that, that what I've been hearing from different sources is that there has been a rise in anxiety and depression and mental health struggles in children, in adults. Um, it, do you find that to be true in your own practice, in your experiences? Absolutely. Um, it, it's with children, I think it's connected to isolation. Now, there may be a pre-existing kind of uh, uh, anxiety or level of depression already there in both adults or children, but then it gets exacerbated by the social isolation because one of the components of, of most definitions of mental health has something to do with uh, connectedness, social connectedness or familial connectedness, you know, relationships. And when children in particular are socially isolated like so many of them have been for the last, <laughs> I read a funny thing, we're, we're celebrating the first anniversary of our, our two-week uh, isolation to, uh, <laughs> to get the, um, uh, flatten the curve, so we're coming up on the first anniversary of the two weeks, but for, when children are isolated for um, months at a time or feel stuck in the house or just you know, kind of stuck there with their parents, bless their heart. You know, as a teenager, you're supposed to be practicing leaving home. And um, so, and if, if I'm stuck with my parents, I know that when I was a teenager, it was like thirst or hunger to spend time with my friends. And when I wasn't allowed to, you know, I would get uh, very upset. And um, it was difficult uh, for me just personally. But um, children in particular need that social connectedness. And when they're isolated, it really uh, can crank up depression or anxiety uh, that they have difficulty explaining. They wouldn't know exactly why it's happening that way, but they would um, uh, be experiencing it and couldn't, couldn't really express it. Adults the same way. Some adults isolate when they get depressed, but others get depressed when they're isolated. So it's difficult for them to, uh, to understand too, unless they have really good insight, why uh, the disconnectedness is causing this or it is because of disconnectedness and so uh, but yes to very directly answer the question yes there's been a significant increase in uh, depression and anxiety with children significant increase in depression and anxiety with adults and uh, the suicide rate has jumped pretty dramatically as well are you finding that COVID related or induced depression and anxiety is different in some way than non-COVID anxiety and depression, or is it just the same and just triggered by different extenuating circumstances? Uh, I'm finding that, uh, and Donna can you know, say what she wants to say, but I'm finding that it is more uh, having to do with the uh, social isolation and the disconnect from uh, normal activities of our daily lives mm -hmm. uh, that that and and some of it uh, is purely that um, some of it is a pre-existing but um, the in, the real increase in the incident is because I think because of the isolation Donna do you agree with that do you find the same thing <laughs> 
Yeah, so the, back to the idea of depression and anxiety originating out of powerlessness or feeling mm-hmm. trapped. The isolation is forced. It's not by choice. And if, if uh, a child feels powerless in that situation of not being able to do what they want to do, they don't have that choice, their choices are limited, then that can feed uh, the depression and exacerbate uh, other kinds of things that they have going on in their lives on top of already I'm struggling with puberty or already I'm feeling like I'm having a hard time in school. Well, on top of that, now I'm forced to stay at home and I have no choice. So it, it then exacerbates other issues. Yeah. Well, and I know in, in our home, it, the different mode of school has caused some anxiety, just kind of, well, am, am I going to be behind when I get back? I mean, I've got my middle child that doesn't, you know, they don't know what other kids are doing and that everyone's in the same boat. And it's like, well, am I going to be behind when I get back? Am I not going to be able to be in my, you know, I wanted to go to the next grade next year, which was this year, you know, am I going to be held back because I wasn't at school and, you know, trying to explain to this kid that, well, everyone, this, this isn't just you because they don't understand that necessarily at certain ages that this isn't just me. It's everybody is doing this. So there are a lot of these stresses about whether they are not going to be where they need to be the following year. So I could see, you know, all different kinds of, all different sources of anxiety inducing and and depression inducing situations. Um, Sure. They're missing out. Um, and that and that sense of missing out, missing out on their sports, missing out on the um, the dances or the little get togethers, um, all that stuff is for them. Those are big deals. And they're like, oh, man, I, I, am I going to ever get to have fill in the blank um, these experiences? And so that's very fear provoking. Yeah, if you think about it, you know, Romeo and Juliet were 15 and 13, respectively. And uh, that whole tragedy is because some young teenager um, couldn't have life exactly the way that they wanted. And that meant to them life was over. Mm -hmm. And so it's a it's a difficult time and uh, for everybody, number one. And it's hard for them to see that this is just a season that it's eventually going to pass and hopefully the ship will be righted. Things get back to normal. And um, uh, I'm not, I'm going to be everybody's same boat that I am and I'm not going to be behind or I'm not going to be left behind. Yeah. Well, when we're as parents, as teachers, grandparents, when we're, when we're recognizing these challenges in our kids and our grandkids and our students, what, um, what are some things that we can do? I mean, I, for me, I feel like there's kind of a, a progression that needs to happen um, from, okay, what can I do myself to, uh, what is that progression of help? Um, I, there are kids, I'm guessing, that won't need clinical intervention, that won't necessarily need counseling, won't need medication. So what do we do as a first step if we see these things in our kids and we want to come alongside them and help them? Um, are there are there spiritual things? Are there, um, you know, just practical things that we can do as parents? The, the role of prayer, obviously, we're a prayer podcast. I'd love to know what the role of prayer is in our lives and in the lives of our kids when they're facing some of these hurdles initially? All right. So uh, 
that that's a lot of questions. That's so let me start with the let me start with the <laughs> prayer question because uh, that's a great question. I, I believe that prayer invites God uh, to be a part of the situation that we're going through. It, it brings God's presence and it, and it also invites his acceptance. I mean, accepts his guidance and leading. It's, it, it's a way of bringing him into the situation to walk alongside us in it. But one thing I think it's important in terms of the, the role of prayer is to make sure your children recognize that prayer is not the same thing as sending a wish list to Santa Claus. Mm, that's that, so that important. Prayer, Prayer is a vehicle of relationship. It's very much like communication in a marriage or communication between parent and child. So the role and purpose of prayer is for the growth of that relationship and then everything that comes along with that relationship. So I think one of the most valuable things that we ever taught our children was how to listen to God. And, and in, our, in our children's lives, we prayed together as a family where we would sit together and everybody would, um, we would pray and then everybody would spend a little bit of time in silence and we would just sit and listen. And then we would go around and everybody would share. What did you hear from God? What did you feel God's uh, voice in your heart saying to you? And it was really amazing, even, even when our children were young, that they had some of the most insightful things that God told them. We were going, wow. <laughs> It's nice when you're young and you don't have any blocks in the way between hearing the voice of God and and um, receiving what he has to say for you. So we really emphasized that that aspect of it. And then when they were really young, before that, before they were 10 years old, when they were still concrete in their thinking, we actually set up a chair in the living room and we called it Jesus's chair. And we use that as just a symbol to remind them that he's always present. So they would get used to he was always a part of all of our family time because we would have that that chair in the family room. And we modeled for them asking for Jesus's guidance about every decision we made, everything that we did. And so I think one of the things that that parents can do as a starting point is to begin by looking in the mirror. Um, we need to look at our own reactions and responses, particularly to the kind of situation we're in now. Are we responding based on fear? Are, are we um, listening to fear and letting fear direct our choices? Are we giving in to negativity? Or are we bringing gratitude in into our family and talking about the things that are positive, the things that we're grateful for? Do we find ourselves getting frustrated and starting to take our frustration out on others? Or do we sit down and talk about our feelings in an open and healthy way? Are we really focused on the circumstances or do we fix our eyes on Jesus? These are some of the questions that we can ask ourselves because what we are showing is what ultimately we're teaching our kids to do. If we, if we show them avoidance and um, that we don't deal with things up front and out in the open, then they will not deal with things up front and out in the open. So um, remembering that everything we do teaches them something to be intentional about what we're doing and also examine how are we thinking about things? How do we think about ourselves? Do we think, oh, 
I'm, I made a mistake. I'm so stupid. I can't believe I did that. And do we voice those kinds of things? Do we feel those kinds of things? Um, our kids might start voicing and feeling those kinds of things if they see us doing that. So then instead, say out loud, mistakes are normal. Everybody makes mistakes. I can't do better than the best I can do. I'm still loved of God. I'm still a valuable person, even if I did something wrong. Um, and then that models for kids to think that same way. That is so good. That's so much good stuff right there. I still, I think I need to go back and re-listen and just like take notes because that was, that was all really good. Um, what I loved is about prayer, talking about how, you know, I think about a kid that might say, I'm feeling anxious. I don't know how to make this go away. Not that they might, they may not verbalize it that way, but you know, they might look at it as, um, you know, or a parent might look at this as, okay, let's pray that that feeling would go away. And when it becomes a laundry list of requests and that feeling doesn't go away immediately, and that's all the kid learns about how to pray is just, we just ask God for things uh-huh. then they're missing this whole other side of prayer. And that's, that's so important. That's profound because um, I, I just think that's such an important thing that you mentioned is looking at prayer as a means for them to develop their relationship with God because he is the source of everything, but not because he's just going to tick down our list and, and check off the, the wish list. And I think that could really help a child in the long run and also prevent damaging, uh, damaging things from happening. If a child is thinking, well, all prayer is, is asking God for something. And then that particular thing doesn't happen right away. So God must not love me or must not hear me or must not be able to fix this. Right. I know plenty of adults that think that way. And so imagine how difficult it would be for children to understand. But I really consider that the idea of praying away anxiety uh, or praying away a feeling, first of all, feelings don't need to be prayed away. They need to be processed um, because that's healthy. (laughs) Um, And and secondly, I think of it in terms of looking at people in scripture like Moses or Joshua or David or Daniel or Ezekiel or Jeremiah. They all prayed diligently, but that's not all they did. They also partnered with God and put their prayer into action because God desires to be partners with us in everything. Um, we want to, we want to listen and, and respond to God's leading and guidance in prayer and then take action based on where he walks with us or where he's guiding us. Because that's the example that's set in scripture. Jesus didn't pray in Gethsemane, please take this cup away from me and then sit there and wait on God to perform the healing. He said, take the cup away from me but let your will be done. And then he would um, take action. He would walk into Jerusalem. He walked to the cross. So uh, thinking of it in terms of prayer as the relationship allows us to walk with Jesus in that relationship, partnering with him to work through these kinds of things rather than try to make them magically go away. 
Yeah, that that is so good. That is such a good distinction that emotions are not meant to be prayed away, but they're they're meant to be processed and and that partnering with God in that process is so important, um, which is wonderful based on what what the two of you do. It's amazing that you're able to do that and invite God into that process. So what, what are some ways, some practical ways, very beginner level ways, if a parent is dealing with a child that's struggling with feeling anxious or depressed, um, to process those feelings in the beginning, or to get to the point where you can determine whether processing them at home is enough or whether counseling might be necessary or next steps to seeing professional help might be necessary? It's a, it's a really good question. And, and my belief is that it starts with uh, connection and communication. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, we're, we're all busy. Uh, This last year has been really overwhelming. One of the things that it's done in my life is it's broken down the boundary between home and work. And uh, since now I work from home a whole lot, you know, see clients virtually uh, teach class to some extent, uh, virtually in my, in my role as uh, professor and uh, at Mercer University in Atlanta, uh, some of that work's done online, um, and so it uh, I'm at home and I'm working, so it it kind of feels like there's no break between work and home. I move, uh, I just move from the bedroom to the to the living room where I where I sit and and do the stuff on my computer, and so we're we're all overwhelmed. It's been such a tremendous. Um, change in life. Uh, we're all busy. We're all overwhelmed. But um, the connection with your children needs to be one of the highest priorities in your life. And so uh, the first practical thing that I would say is make sure that you're spending lots and lots of time with your children so that they don't get lost in that inability to separate home and work life nowadays. And they don't get lost in our constant overwhelmness and exhaustion because they're, they're overwhelmed too and they're uncertain too. So I have to, in situations like that, redouble my efforts and make sure that I spend time with them, that I connect with them, uh, uh, not just regularly, but I make sure I do that every single day. Put down the computer, put down the telephone, put down whatever screen that we're all staring at all day long and keep keep dinner time sacred or some evening time sacred or the first two hours every morning when you get up sacred where you just spend time uh, with with your children and, and connect with them and uh, make sure that they feel listened to, make sure they have a, uh, a voice, they know that they can talk with you about anything because when they're little, it, you, let, you teach them, you can talk to me about anything and they learn that lesson well when they get up to the dangerous times of teenagehood where they got to make some really life altering decisions. Um, they then can talk to you about that, but uh, lay in the base of being able to talk about anything at any time uh, with your children is really, really good, but it takes a lot of effort on my part because I'm tired. I'm worn out. I'm having difficulty. Like I said, separating work from home. And um, so I have to make a firm commitment to do that. And it's nice to do it in blocks of time because I can't try to grab three minutes with them here and two minutes there and have a conversation for uh, 30 seconds 
um, at another time. Um, I have to commit that I'm going to do it in the morning. I'm going to do it over the over the meal. I'm going to do it in the evening. Any time that I have an opportunity, so that another another piece of that is so that if things start changing then I will notice it and I'll notice it quickly mm-hmm. and I can do, deal with it as I need to deal with it. Um, children ha- go through some uh, normal developmental things like when they hit puberty, they tend to be a little more brooding. You know, they tend to uh, internalize more and keep their thoughts on the inside and not express them so much. They'll go to school all day. They'll come home, get off the bus, walk in the front door. How was your day? Fine. Fine. What did you do? Nothing. You know, and that's all you're going to get out of them unless you go push. That's normal. That's fairly normal. And Don and I drove ours crazy because they would they would try to get away with that. How was your day? Fine. What did you do? Nothing. We would say, okay, you got on the bus at 7:20 this morning. Then what <laughs> happened? You know, and we would we would really we would bug them until they would in, engage with us, and they were pretty good natured about it. They knew we weren't bullying or being oppressive or anything, and they would then tell us, well, no, not a big deal. Blah blah blah. I go kind of go through their day. So be that in touch with them so that you know that you know and can more easily differentiate between uh he's he's just being 13 years old today uh which just as an aside probably ought to be diagnosable in, in and of itself oh he's he's 13 what's his diagnosis he's 13 you know that <laughs> that kind of stuff um because that's a that's a tough time for him but um if you are really in tune with them, you notice when there is some significant deviation, they isolate themselves. Well, it can be normal, but uh, are they isolating them so much that it's, uh, themselves so much that it's an indicator of something's going on? And so I go check in. I go find out. And I say to them, well, you've, you've seemed to – I know you like to spend time in your room. and it's, it's nice to have quiet alone time. But you've seemed to be doing that a little more than normal. Uh, is there, is there, tell me if there's something going on, anything I can help with. And then uh, listen very carefully to what they say. And so that connection needs to be paired with listening. But um, indicators that you need to look for for are severe um, uh, isolation, uh, self-harming kind of behaviors, um, talking about uh, I wish I had never been born or sometimes I wish that I go to sleep and just never wake up. You know, those are really bold out front uh, kind of statements that sometimes you'll hear a child say, and that then ought to raise a question in your brain. Do I need to uh, see if maybe they can, they can talk with somebody. Um, Then more mild things, you notice isolation and they say to you when you check in and you listen carefully, they say to you, I've really been struggling. There's a group of uh, guys at school. Uh, they bully everybody. That really bothers. There's a group of girls at school. They're being really mean to me and my friends and those kind of things. Well, is that severe enough that they're going to need to talk with somebody about it? Or is that something that you can process with them? But the, the, but the key to it is being connected and listening carefully to what they say and uh, making sure that you're hearing accurately uh, what they're saying. Then if they do need to go see somebody, think about uh, a counselor first. 
because counselors are the talk, uh, do uh, all talk therapy. If you go to a psychiatrist, psychiatrists practice medicine, you know, they're physicians. Mm-hmm. And the first thing that's going to happen if you go to a physician is they're going to give you a prescription um, because they practice medicine. So first step, if you feel like it's not something that you can talk through at home and get a good resolution to is to find a counselor. And I would do that through uh, recommendations. I would ask people about uh, had they ever been to a counselor or the kids or know anybody who had and then get get somebody that you know and trust to give you a name and um, then if you go visit them it's, it's like anything you don't buy the first try, sweater that you try on typically well maybe you don't take the first counselor that you go to see because you need to feel a real connection this is somebody that i can have a strong relationship with who i can say anything but it, that that's that's step three the first the first step is uh the connection the second step is constantly be assessing um any thing that you see as an issue don't hover don't smother just be aware you know just keep an eye check in with them constantly so that you know what's going on uh, as much as possible in their lives and then the third step was if you see some significant deviation that's not reconcilable by having a conversation or multiple conversations then uh, consider uh, contacting a counselor first and a counselor, if they think medication is appropriate, would refer you then to a, a psychiatrist. But counselor first, just to talk. Do you think that it's, is there a big difference between a Christian counselor and a secular counselor in in the in terms of approach? Do you think that it's important for a Christian family to take their kid to a Christian counselor? Or do you think that the approach would be similar? I think there's a significant difference because it includes faith in the process and more and more research is coming out, which is, I think, a very positive thing that shows that faith inclusion in counseling is beneficial, that people of faith or that people that bring their faith into part of the process of dealing with struggles have greater resilience and um, better efficacy in the counseling. And so uh, I think it does matter. Uh, People also finding a counselor whose faith uh, is in alignment with yours, that they have similar beliefs so that you're not um, getting confusing messages is ends up being important too, if you're going to bring faith into the, into the counseling process, but I do, I do definitely think it makes a difference. Yeah, and I, I agree with that. It's like leaving out a third of the person. You know, you go to a counselor, a secular counselor, and they just deal with the uh, emotional uh, slash behavioral or physical, um, those two dimensions of emotion and physical, uh, physical uh, and you leave out that whole third um, dimension of spirituality and faith. So I think it's really important, yes, for uh, Christians to pursue Christian counseling. Do you, as you're dealing with parents of kids that are struggling, that have mental health struggles, um, do you find that parents feel guilty sometimes because their kids are struggling? Uh, Yes, but I think that the, the first question they need to ask, instead of just listening to that feeling, the first question they need to ask is, am I feeling guilt or am I feeling shame? Mm. Guilt is actually a motivating feeling it's it's something that that 
reminds you or points out to you that there's something that you can change. And if you are feeling like, oh, gosh, I didn't like that choice. I didn't like the way I talked to my child at that moment. Well, then you're free to change it. And you're motivated by the guilt to make that change. And that becomes a very positive thing. Shame, on the other hand, says you're bad and it's all your fault. And my guess is that most of the people that feel guilty, they call it feeling guilty when their child is struggling, are actually feeling shame. They feel like it's their fault, that they must have done something wrong, and that they're to blame and they're bad. Shame is lie-based. We know scripture says there is therefore no now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. So any kind of fault or shame or blame is lie-based. I am responsible for my choices, but there's freedom in taking responsibility. But shame, on the other hand, is like quicksand. It almost sticks you in the place where you are, where you just kind of sink down into this sense of hopelessness and despair. Oh, there's nothing I can do. So if, if you are feeling shame, if you ask that question, is this guilt or shame, and you find you're feeling shame, then you need to process the shame through prayer with God and, and ask him to let you know Am I bad? Am I wrong? Well, the, the scriptural answer to that is no, you're not bad. You're not, you're, you're not to blame. There is no condemnation. Then you can ask, is there anything I need to change? And that shifts the focus. And then you can start evaluating and processing with God's help. What are the things I might need to change? And as I said, there's freedom in being able to choose and being able to make changes as opposed to feeling stuck in shame. And I think that's the significant place to start is with that question. Is it guilt or is it shame? Oh, that is such an important distinction. And I think, um, do, you do you feel like in Christian circles, um, mental health struggles are more taboo than in the general public? Or do you, uh, that's a perception I have that it, it seems to me that possibly in Christian circles, we have this idea that again, you can separate, okay, well, as long as I'm, you know, reading the Bible and praying, I should be able to handle everything. And, or as long as I'm teaching my kid that, you know, God's in control, then, then there shouldn't be these struggles. Do you, is that, is that perception? Do you find that to be true as well? That in Christian circles, it could be under acknowledged or discussed, or even that there is possibly a negative light shed on mental health struggles? I, I find all three of those things are true, that, that there's a tendency to avoid uh, dealing with it. There's some denial involved um, and, and that there is a, a view of mental health issues that is false. The view says it's a moral problem rather than an emotional or a physical problem. And uh, thinking of it as a moral failure puts a judgment on it. And so I would say uh, that, that from a Christian perspective, removing judgment, which is definitely scriptural, would actually free our hearts up to understand that struggles are a part of living in a fallen world. And we still live in this fallen world. It's, it, it's still 
the the environment around us, the circumstances around us, um, and the fact that we have Christ in our hearts doesn't change the circumstances we're living in, um, still reflecting the sin-based nature of this world. Also, Christians still believe things that are not true, even, even though they have access to Christ and they can ask for truth in their hearts, they still believe lies. Um, many Christians believe that they're worthless, that they don't matter, um, that they're not good enough, that they don't live up to God's expectations, and those beliefs are, are actually damaging um, and, and false, but uh, being a Christian doesn't make me immune to the deceptions of the enemy or the lies of this world. So we need to remember that everyone has struggles, that, that the Lord even told us we were going to have struggles in this world, um, and that that doesn't mean that we have failed morally or that we are a failure as a believer. Yeah, I think that's important. Um, David, did you have anything to add? Um, I was uh, thinking as she was saying that, yeah, the the, the judgment is a, a problem and associated with the stigma having to do with mental health and seeing it as a moral failing. Okay, so take this, take this sentence, David struggles with a depression, and um, he could help with that by praying harder, having more faith. Now, substitute diabetes for <laughs> depression. Right. Would that, would that sentence make any sense at all? <laughs> But that's the exact analogy because many, many depressions can be from external sources, but it creates physical change in us so that our chemistry gets kind of rearranged and we uh, uh, have a, a similar uh, disorder, so to speak, that's going to need some work to correct it, may need medical intervention to correct it, can be corrected, uh, and you can live wonderful, successful lives um, with periods of depression or having depression as a thing or anxiety the same way, but um, the the judgment and the, uh, the moral judgment of seeing it as something different, a moral failing or um, uh, somehow not living up to some expectation, that's that's harmful. And uh, but I agree with you. I've I've heard it taught uh, and said before. To, uh, well, I, I'm just not getting any. I'm not feeling any better. Well, you just your faith needs to be stronger. I've literally heard that kind of stuff. Clearly, your faith's not strong enough. And um, I would I would disagree. I, I would disagree uh, to some extent because if I substitute diabetes into that same say, well, I've still I've have I have diabetes. Well, your faith is just not strong enough. Well, I, uh, suddenly it doesn't make doesn't make sense because um, if I take away the moral judgment of it, uh, then it I can see that the, it's it's arising out of a stigma based on uh, judgment. Yeah. Well, I love that what. The two of you are doing is raising awareness of the struggles, trying to knock down that stigma and, and just open people's eyes. I mean, this has been a really eye-opening conversation. I know it's been really helpful to me as a parent, and I know that it's going to be really helpful to a lot of people. So thank you so much. Um, where can our listeners connect with you online and on social media. I, I went to your website and you guys don't just do, uh, you know, you don't just do medical things. You have all kinds of stuff that you, you've written books. Um, where can people find out more about you? 
Well, our website is thedoctorslane.com, doctor spelled out. Um, so the D-O-C-T-O-R-S-L-A-N-E.com is our website. And then I have a couple of places on social media. I have a, a group called Restored Christianity, and we do uh, Bible study on there every other week. And I post writings and different kinds of things like that. And then I have another one called Made for Another World Readers. This is a Facebook group. Uh, these are for people who are interested in Christian books, particularly um, Christian books that really challenge people's uh, faith toward growth. And we talk about um, different books that are available, and I post uh, also post some writings on that group page. So those are a couple of places you can connect with me on Facebook. I also have, we also have an Instagram page, The Doctor's Lane um, is our Instagram page. And we put up some um, interesting sayings and some um, information about trauma and grief and loss. Those are our areas that, that we focus a lot of our work on. And so uh, we have a lot of things about that on the Instagram page. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for coming and having this discussion. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to share with listeners before we close in prayer? Well, one thing that came to my mind when you were talking about some things that parents can do. Mm. Um, well, actually, two things. One is to um, make sure when you're spending time with them that you catch them doing good and give them positive encouragement when they are. Um, rather than focusing on what they're doing wrong. So when you, when you catch them doing things you want them to do and you give a lot of reinforcement and encouragement in that, it really helps the child to feel good about themselves and to feel like, hey, I can do this. And the other thing that I think is crucial is as moms, you probably know your kids better than anyone. And your children are in the process of figuring out who they are so call out their identity for them. Mm. You see them better and more clearly through the lens of God's eyes than, than anybody else in their lives. So call it out. If your child is sensitive and caring, make that overt. Say, I see how sensitive and caring you are. I love that heart of love that you have. Um, if they're very strong-willed, instead of arguing about, you know, gosh, I wish that they're, they weren't so strong-willed and, and, and headstrong and difficult and stubborn, call out that strong will as a leadership quality. I love that you have this quality of being a leader, and, and we, can, we can work on building that leadership ability in you and the strength that you're going to have to stand up to your peers when you get older is that's going to be so powerful. So call out their identity so that helps them with that exploration process of figuring out who they are. Oh, that is so good. David, anything else? Any last thoughts? Um, I can't think of anything. Donna did a really good job when she said that. I went, gosh, I, I, I really meant to mention that catch them being good when I was talking about uh, things that parents can do uh, with children. And so I apologize for, for leaving that out when I was discussing that one. No, but um, something I needed to hear for sure. And I know, uh, yeah, that, that's a great, um, great tip. 
but you can you can see that I'm that I married real well. The Lord blessed me in an extraordinary way, and mostly I've just been along for this wonderful ride so far. And so that's all that's all I would add to anything. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, how can we pray for the two of you today? Well, we we're thinking of a couple of things. There's um, our daughter is a veterinarian. And she's in the middle of negotiating to buy the practice that she's been working for. Yeah. So that would be that would be wonderful because it's a it would be a big turning point. She's extremely excited, but but you know sometimes those things work out wonderfully, and sometimes your hopes are dashed on the rocks. But um, that's that's something that prayer support would be much appreciated for. Mm-hmm. And then we've got two grandkids, and everybody who has children uh, needs all the prayer they can get. So for our son and daughter-in-law. Um, I know that they would appreciate prayers for uh, support of their parenting and for, for their family. So uh, those are the two things that, uh, that I think would be really good. We'd appreciate. All right. Well, let's close in prayer. Thanks again, both of you for being here. You're welcome. Very, very. Thank you for inviting us. Well, God, we just thank you for this time. Thank you for the opportunity to just think about, mental health and to acknowledge that mental health struggles are real. Um, Father, we just pray that you would help us open our eyes, give us eyes to see the people around us, the kids around us, help us to see them and to recognize when they're struggling. Show us what we need to do to slow down and um, just look up every once in a while from, from our busy lives and and from our technology. Um, God, we just pray for, Uh, David and Donna and just pray that you would give them everything that they need to continue to do the work that you have called them to do. I just, I love their stories of how you called them so specifically to um, the ministry and the work that they're doing. And, and I just continue to pray that you would infuse them with everything that they need to persevere, even when things get hard to be inspired, even when things get dull and mundane and and day to day, and just give them everything that they need along the way, just the reminders that you have called them to this. Um, Give them glimpses of the amazing things that you're doing. I'm sure they can only see just a small fraction of the fruit of their ministry and their work, but give them pictures and glimpses of of the fruit of, of what they're doing. Um, by being obedient to you in their work and their ministry. Lord, we just lift up their daughter today and her um, negotiations to purchase this vet practice. God, if this is your will for her, we just pray you would open the doors wide open, that you'd cut through the red tape and give her favor and um, just allow this to, to go through without a hitch. And we pray for your blessing on her work as a veterinarian and on um, just her future and, and this practice. We lift up their son and daughter-in-law and their two grandkids and just pray your blessing on them, God. I just thank you that you, you've you given their son this example of godly parents and just pray that you would help him and his wife to have wisdom and endurance and perseverance in their parenting and that you would just bless those grandkids, help them to come to know you at an early age and, and just um, that you would just leave a legacy of faith in this family, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 
Thanks for joining us on today's episode of the Praying Christian Women podcast. We'd love to hear from you, so please leave us a comment to let us know what questions or topics we can address in future shows. Then hop over to prayingchristianwomen.com slash journal to download your free prayer guide. We're so glad you joined us for today's show, and we wish you God's deepest blessings as you draw closer to Him and change the world one prayer at a time.